Welcome back. Before we dive into this awesome discussion, I just want to talk about Global Entrepreneurship Week. It is this week, November 13th through the 18th, I believe, um, and it's going on all over the globe, as you would guess, and Lexington has a bunch of cool events. So if you are in the Lexington area for Global Entrepreneurship Week, do not miss some of these events. My favorite one that they have on the schedule is Influence Lex. It's this Thursday, the 15th. Um, and it is all about social media influencers and how to really build an audience, especially in the Lexington area. But there's a bunch of other events. If you're interested in technology, interested in startups and entrepreneurship, and you're in Central Kentucky, you will not want to miss this. Go to G-E-W-L-E-X, G-E-W-L-E-X.com for more info. All right, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I am Nate Antetomaso, joined by Evan Knowles. Another great conversation this week with Whit Wang. He is working in ways to bring international investment to Kentucky, to the Bluegrass region. It's something that we're missing just a little bit, and he's on a mission to fix that. You won't want to miss this. Let's dive right in. All right, welcome back to the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a second, I'm laughing. (laughs) All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. As always, my name is Nate Antetomaso up in Chicago, Illinois. What's up, Evan? Nothing much, man. We're down here in Lexington, downtown Lexington. Downtown LEX. Uh, You were actually up here earlier this week, though. Yeah, I came up there. Uh, we had a demo day at Beam Suntory, which is a big uh, alcohol parent company that owns companies like Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, um, and a few big other brands like in the vodka space and um, tequila space. Uh, yeah. So it's a big company. So we went up there and showed them what we do at Fuji and set up a little booth. Um, so it was really cool to go do that and, and tell them that we're a tech company from from Lexington in the middle of, of bourbon country. Yeah. Did they like that? Like, did that, was that a little bit of a foot in the door saying you're from bourbon country where a lot of their brands, like our, their brand is headquartered there basically. Yeah. No, they love that. They, uh, you know, a lot of people don't associate technology with Kentucky. So it's awesome to yeah. make that connection between bourbon and, and technology. So yeah, they definitely connected with it. I know that's that's one thing you say a lot, and I think we we might have touched about it on here before. Um, but just like when you when you meet clients and when you talk to them and you say that you're from Lexington, it really kind of helps Fuji and helps you stick out. Yeah, it's one of my favorite part of the pitches because yeah. um, you know it gives them a little bit more of a personal connection um, from where we're coming from and the uniqueness of what we do. Um, and it's always fun to listen to the reaction. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, let's, I mean, let's just roll right into it then. You know, there's, it always stands out when you talk about technology and business in Lexington. Um, part of what we want to do with this podcast is highlight people um, that are involved with that in Lexington and in the bluegrass as a whole. So I'm super excited about today's conversation. We have our friend and someone doing great stuff in Kentucky, Whit Wang, um, the Director of Market Research and Development at Bluegrass International Fund. How you doing, man? Good. I'm doing really well. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Evan, for having me today. Uh, it's really a pre- pleasure. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for being here. How'd I do with that that long title and that intro? 
that was great. You did a great <laughs> job. You know, sometimes yeah. when people ask me, I'm just saying I'm the director of the company, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> go with that. We can we can re uh, we can re it. <laughs> Founder, CEO, and director. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, Wit and I met at UK in the business school. We were both GAN ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, both kind of hit it off right off the bat and realized we had a had a passion for the business and entrepreneurship and most of all I think the city of Lexington and really helping to build something. So we've really become, you know, great friends and business partners. So it's yeah. Wit's somebody I'm really looking forward to highlighting on the episode. Yeah, for sure. And we, we actually were in a entrepreneurship class together. Um, it was like that entrepreneurship capstone class. And I didn't really know you then. Um, but then when, you know, I kind of met you through Evan and through all the Fuji guys, I was like, oh, shit, this guy was in my class. Yes. <laughs> right. You know, it's such a small world. And uh, all of my, you know, great friends ended up working or has have a ties with Fuji yeah. <laughs> in the past. Yeah, we and really then, got a little squad together there, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Well, do you kind of want to just jump in a little bit um, to your background there? I mean, you you obviously have such a, a unique history and unique background of how you ended up where you are now. Um, so I don't know, just kind of start at the beginning and anything you want to share, and then we can kind of get into it from there. Yeah, sure, definitely. Yeah. Um, I can give a little background. So I am originally from China, and then I actually came to the United States uh, in 2010, so about eight years ago. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a tiny town in China called Guangzhou, which has only about 14.5 million people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, when I first came here, I went to Pennsylvania for high school, and then I uh, moved to LA for. Two and a half years, and I graduated from uh, a private high school there, and then I came to Lexington, to University of Kentucky. And a lot of people ask me, hey, why do you come to Kentucky from L.A.? Well, first of all is I've never been in the middle part of the United States. Uh, that's a different experience. And, um, of course, here I, you know, I wanted to get out when I first got here because – there's only really horses and bluegrass. That's about it. Um, there's n- you see bluegrass around here? Uh, no, you know. <laughs> it's in my head. It's in my head. Um, and that's pretty much it. There's no restaurants or no fun stuff to do. But really, the southern hospitality and the people who are here really are is the reason that got me to stay here. Um, up until now, I can call Lexington my second home here in the United States. Is I've never been in the same place for over than two years when I, while while I was growing up, and Lexington is the only place I stayed longer than two years, and now it's going to be the fifth year that I'm going to be in Lexington. So that's awesome. So uh, let's back up a little bit, talk more about China because that's definitely something unique. Um, tell us a bit about like the city you, you lived in and what what it was like living there. Yeah, so um, you know, it's interesting enough, I got out of China about eight years ago. I was looking up some statistics, and um, it's great because there's such a big difference. I was just saying that, you know, where I grew up in Guangzhou has about 14.5 million people, and the size is about five times bigger than Lexington. And Lexington only have about 300,000 people. Right, let me, and then Guangzhou is really close to Shenzhen, which has another 12 million people. 
Um, that's people also call Shenzhen as the uh, Silicon Valley of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, the province. Let me give you a little bit about background over there. It's it's, it's a southern uh, province, and then it's close to Hong Kong. So uh, when people first come to uh, overseas, most of the people are from Guangdong province. So in the entire province, we have about you know eighty million people, and That's uh, more than five times the size of Iceland. It's no, yes, yes <laughs> definitely. <laughs> The Guangdong province has about 80 million people, and then, you know, province kind of equal to state, and in t- the entire state of Kentucky only has about 3 million people. So it's having, you know, 20 times more, 30 times That's more crazy. people. So, um, but man, with more people, there are definitely more opportunities. But the reason I came out was because uh, my father used to own many, many different uh, international businesses. And, uh, so he explored opportunities, and here I am to bring everything, uh, share everything with him, yeah. and uh, hopefully we can explore more adventures here. So. Nice. Um, what was your favorite part of, of China? So my favorite part of China, definitely Chinese food. Um, I haven't really found any uh, good restaurants here in Kentucky <laughs> that's really, uh, you know, called authentic. Yeah, and by the way, I just want to throw it out there um, for those Pen Express lovers. Uh, we actually don't eat orange chicken in China. <laughs> it's so good. Though. It's so good. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, we we definitely we don't have orange chicken, and um, we barely we rarely eat kung pao chicken. <laughs> but those are some great dishes. I had them, and uh, just don't think that as you know. It's not authentic. It's authentic. That's yeah. Americanized Chinese. What's <laughs> your favorite but, true Chinese meal? What's my What's my favorite Chinese meal? Yeah. Oh man. Dim sum. What's that? The, it's the uh, It's a southern. It's a Cantonese food. So basically, you steam everything, including seafood and and rice and buns and meat and vegetables. Everything you steam it, and it's a it's a really a Hong Kongese and Cantonese type of food. Huh. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you we have to take us there, and we'll have to get some. Yeah. Next time we, you know, come to China, we'll definitely uh, welcome you and host you there when you come to China, and I'll show you around. Love that. Next year we'll get you on the podcast from China. Yeah. Definitely. What about uh, what about your least favorite part of China? My least favorite part of China. Um, the let me tell you the the craziest part about China is about the public transportation. Imagine all those people going to work every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was always telling this joke where when you get on the subway and afterwards, it's not up to you when you want to get off. It's up to the crowd when they want to let you off. Because <laughs> right? they're just crowd. You just won't be able to squeeze through the crowd and get off the subway. When you get to your station, you have to fight for it. Or sometimes if you're just, uh, you know, gentle and, and not willing to push like myself, I might be stuck until the end of the train station. And it happened to me multiple times when I was in China visit over the summer breaks. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some crazy videos. Yeah. It looks uh, looks pretty stupid. <laughs> I complain about the trains up here in Chicago, but it's probably nothing <laughs> compared to that. <laughs> they made, you know, they have uh, this uh, occupation they made out there. It's called the pusher. Yeah. So what they do is they push in the subway because there's so many people out there. They won't even 
able to close the doors. So they have those pushers to push you in so they can close the subway doors and get the train going to the next station. That sounds really unhealthy. (laughs) It's crazy. Huh. Well, uh, well, I'm always curious. Talk a little bit more about like public transit there. Cause I always hear that, you know, the United States is so far behind Europe and China is the subway just a bad example or the, What's, what's the rest of the transportation like there with that many people? Mm, I think it's really convenient. Uh, it's really convenient, but it's just during rush hours, it's, um, it's just not the best thing to experience. Um, but in comparison to United States transportation, public transportation, I think in China, there's just because there's always such a strong demand, so it's well, well mapped in comparison to the United States. Yeah. Especially here, when you have a huge land, everybody just drives, and there's not it's a more compact there. Thing. So right, got it. Mm-hmm. So you moved to to Pennsylvania first, and then out to LA. Um, what were what was the reason for the move to Pennsylvania, and then the reason to LA, and then what was your experience like between those two places? Oh yeah, definitely. I can tell you a little bit about that. So when I first came to Pennsylvania. Um, I went to all boys school down into a town called Marvin, uh, about 45 minutes away from uh, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I have, okay, the, the only impression that I had about school in the United States is from American Pie. Okay. <laughs> I thought, man, that's going to be so much fun. Everybody parties. <laughs> and then I went to this town and it's all boys about, I have to say 90% of them are african-american yeah. and then you know all they, they play basketball all the time and they're sagging their pants <laughs> and i was one of them i was one of them i was sagging my pants <laughs> you know and then i realized dude this is really unhealthy <laughs> um and you know i can never beat those guys at basketball especially <laughs> I, I different what in my hallway and they just want to play against those international students because they can dunk over us. I was like, dude, I don't like that. So at the time, my father had a business in uh, in LA, and I was like, you know, let me look for some opportunities. And then um, I found a school that accepted me in LA, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get out for the entire year when I was in Pennsylvania. The only time I saw girls was at an annual party, and that's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that was pretty much, um, you know, that wasn't my lifestyle. Yeah. And, so you just want some more diversity. You right. Know. Right. Yeah. So okay. you yourself made the decision to go out to LA? Not, you didn't move as a family or, or what was that? Um, no, at the time, because my father had a business over there. And that's the reason why I, I was looking for that option. I explored New York and, and of course, Miami. And different different parts of the states, but I ended up going to LA because my father was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the primary reason why I went there. You then went to another private high school, right? What was that high school like? So I went to a Christian high school. Actually, I have been going to private schools since I was growing up because most of the private school schools are boarding schools, and uh, my family are not always around. So I just went to those private schools. Um, and in LA, I went to this uh, Christian school. Man, let me tell you this: white people are minorities over there in LA. <laughs> and you know, I have outside—I <laughs> didn't see that many Asian in my life outside of China until I got to LA. 
and then there are all kinds of Asians. And you know what they they used to call me uh, bananas, <laughs> you know, because I look yellow outside and look um, I look because I never speak English. So you know I'm white inside. The people call me banana. And then I was making fun of my Filipino friends because I said, well, if I'm banana, you're a coconut because <laughs> you're brown outside and you're white inside. So they're, they're a very diverse. It really is. A lot of diverse, sub-diversity there. Um, loving it. Yeah, I noticed that too. I mean, Latinos down there. Yes. There's a huge portion of the population as well. Yes, definitely. I lived around uh, UCLA for about two months, and that was a very Asian-heavy population at UCLA and then uh, I noticed that like the Latino population all over the city was was really big mm -hmm. um, yeah it's just a really diverse awesome place right yeah and especially um, when you're in LA when you speak two languages that people think that's very common and then now when I came to Kentucky and then I speak English and Chinese everybody's like whoa you speak two languages that's pretty cool so, yeah yeah, it's no. something different too. Yeah, a lot of people in Kentucky grow up here and oftentimes don't live leave here. So right, <laughs> it's definitely odd to have no two languages because it means you're definitely probably from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so what what made you come to Kentucky? Why why Lexington? Was it University of Kentucky? You said you want to go to the middle of the United States, but why specifically mm -hmm. Lexington? Yeah, because I uh, the reason I came to Lexington was because I've never. Stayed at one place for over two years, so um, I came here with the heart to explore the middle part of the United States, and uh, I don't know. And then UK actually gave me a really good scholarship. So if you want to say money plays a big part of it, uh, I definitely did. Follow the money. Follow where the money is, right? <laughs> so what uh, what did you major in at UK, and you became a Gatton ambassador? What was that experience like? Yeah, so I. Graduated with a business management degree with a minor in communication. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because at the time when I was picking my majors in college, I actually picked finance because I always wanted to work in Wall Street. And then soon I soon after I enrolled into college, I realized, you know, I'm not really a numbers guy. <laughs> so I switched to marketing. And I realized, you know, I'm not a marketing guy either. <laughs> so um, I guess the easy way, easy way out is uh, management. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, management is pretty tough too, because it's all about relationships and people, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a whole another world out there. Um, and ever since that, I think I, I love meeting people and start networking, and I feel like that's something I'm really uh, enjoying doing, rather than doing numbers and. Yeah, totally. That's one thing I noticed because uh, that's where we met was at UK, Gan Ambassadors. Um, I had heard a good amount about you, and so when I met you, I you know, definitely wanted to you know learn more about you, and uh, we became good friends. And you know, of course, right off the bat, I noticed your relationship skills. Um, everybody seemed to know you uh, because of what how involved you were at UK. You know, you set up. Uh, you know, we should definitely talk about some of the organizations you set up and um, some of the effort you put into really establishing an international presence at UK. So why don't you get into, into that? Sure. Um, so I, uh, you know, I used to recruit for the, at the college international center. So um, I actually used to manage about a team of 55 ambassadors. That's what we call them. So basically what we do is this 55 ambassadors are from different countries and they're all, they 
all of them speak English and their hometown language. So I manage them and help with the enrollment. And uh, so that way we can answer students' questions and help them with the enrollment by speaking their own language. So um, that's, that's a fairly interesting program. And then through there, I actually started another organization here within the business school called Global Business Network. So the intention of that organization is to connect people with global backgrounds from the workforce and talk to um, students who are in different majors. So I, I often invite people from financial background, from graphic design background, from marketing background, from uh, pharmacy, nurse, different various backgrounds, and they relate their experience to business in the business world, and then they speak to our students. That way, they can get a real perspective from the people um, in the actual industry and learn from them. That way, they can better make a better decision when they go out and explore their careers. Yeah, um, and it's still going strong. It's still going strong after I graduated. Nice. How in the, that first program you mentioned, how did you become the manager of all of those ambassadors? I imagine you just started as an ambassador yourself and worked your way up, or what was that? Uh, that that's an interesting story because it, that program had a lot of money. It was uh, managed by the International Center, mm-hmm. but it was always managed by two people who were who grew up in Kentucky, mm-hmm. right? And then they don't have the global perspective. So it was really poorly managed when I uh, joined the team. And then one of them graduated from the, um, as the manager because he was the student worker as well. And then um, the, I guess the, the person who was in charge uh, heard about me and she asked me if I would be interested in taking it over. And I did, and I helped them to reestablish the program and then make it more efficient. And then uh, we actually, um, I don't know if we had the highest number that year when I was there or that was the most efficient year when I was there. But um, that year we had an increase, a pretty significant amount of increase in the student enrollment uh, Mm -hmm. that year when I was there. That's amazing. Awesome. I know they've really been making a lot of efforts to to really increase their international recruiting efforts. So it's awesome that you kind of, you played a, big part in that a couple of years ago to really kick it off, I guess. Yeah, it was a fun experience. Yeah. I, I really wanted to work for UK to recruit for them, but, you know, that took forever. So yeah. <laughs> I moved on. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I noticed at UK too. They take a long time to make decisions, even though the things are moving quickly nowadays. They got to yeah. figure out a way to really streamline their decision making. Yeah, I know a bunch uh, of the recruiters over there just from uh, just from working as a tour guide. And the thing is, it's all just like about timing and you have to be there at the right time and they need to have the right availability at the right time. And it's it could be improved for sure. Definitely. So overall, what did you take away from UK? Looking back, what, what value did you get from that college experience? Mm, you know, the best part about it is the people I've met. You know, it's the, it's all about the people that I've met. I have learned more from the people I've met and I've become friends in uh, from college um, than anything else. Don't get me wrong, school is great, but for my major, um, you know, a lot of what I learned 
didn't re- really apply to um, what I do at my work. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I had to learn from uh, from the beginning. But the people I met from college really taught me a lot, and now you know I'm in business with with some of them, and uh, it's just a great opportunity. Especially back in back in the days, the best value was the relationship and the friendship was so pure. You know, there's still money involved, so everybody just just thinks the best for each other, and uh, I guess that's the best value. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I took away as well. I mean, the two years I was there, I definitely put all my effort into joining as many groups and meeting as many people as I could. And ultimately it paid off. And I think that's something that not everybody realizes is that you should go to college and meet as many people as you can. But sadly, most people think, you know, it's all about the grades, but that's really a small portion of it when you really take into what the overall goal of college should be. Definitely. Definitely. I agree. What's, uh, Let's transition into uh, where you're at now, because uh, the way you've described it to me, your job sounds like uh, you were born for it. <laughs> so uh, why don't you go into what you're doing now and uh, kind of what your role is? Definitely. I can tell you uh, a little bit about the background of my company. So what we do is we help foreign nationals to invest in a project that we sponsor here in Kentucky. And then through this investment, uh, in return, in the five to six years, they will get permanent residency. And also they can expect to get their money back um, after the project. Yes, so that's what, what my company does. And what I do is so basically I go out and find those investors overseas. And I manage all the relationships with overseas finders and brokers and all the relationships. Um, so I really interesting. I was really interested in this uh, job was because it is a form of recruitment, but it's not recruiting students. It's recruiting investors who will uh, be getting benefits from moving to the United States and get a different uh, lifestyle per se. So when you're looking for these investors, what are you looking for? Are you looking for um, people that want to become you know, U.S. citizens and invest you know, a certain amount that helps them get on a fast track to doing that? Are you looking for uh, international businessmen that have some kind of particular background that really will add value, value to the state? Uh, what are you looking for there? You know, most of the, our people who are interested in our program are the upper middle class. Why? Because most of them are in a country that are uh, financially unstable or politically unstable. So, for example, 90%, you know, three years ago, 90% of the investors are from China because they're trying to get out of China. And then now we're seeing more and more people from Brazil, you know, from Vietnam, from India, uh, for various reasons. And then, But I have to clarify one thing is that the ultra-rich people, they don't want to come to the United States. Right. And that's an interesting perspective that I've learned is first – if they come over to the United States or get a green card or uh, get a citizenship, they have to pay taxes to the United States, and they don't want to pay the worldwide tax. Um, also, another thing is when they're ultra-rich, they already have the free access to the United States whenever they want to. So it's the upper middle class that they want, come, they want to come to the United States. They want to have a better or different lifestyle 
than what they have in their home country. And more importantly, most of them come to the United States is because for uh, it's because they're children. They want their children to yeah. have a better education opportunity. Can you give more background on um, the certain law or procedure where if they were to invest a certain amount of money in the United States and create a certain amount of jobs, that gains them some sort of is it citizenship? Can you talk more about that? Because you, you talked about that strategy with you. Mm-hmm. with your fund and how you target those people. Um, can you just talk more about the behind the scenes there, what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. So um, a foreign investor uh, can invest $500,000, and that's the minimum investment amount, into a project that we sponsor, which our current project is a real estate uh, project. It's a hotel in uh, Louisville. So after they invest, uh, within about two years, that's which is the average uh, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services application processing time, they will get their uh, conditional green card. And then after holding the conditional green card for two years, they're able to apply to remove the condition and receive their permanent residency. So in the span of five to six years, uh, then at the projects, they get their uh, permanent residency along with the uh, $500,000 back. And of course, uh, during the five to six years, they will also get an interest rate, uh, but it's pretty low in comparison to a normal real estate investment. The reason being uh, is there are three reasons, right? People go through this program. Number one is their permanent residency, and number two is they want their money back, the $500,000. The last one is the interest rate, so that's why it's lower than the average real estate investment. Interesting. And so they're guaranteed citizenship after the five or six years or not? They're not guaranteed okay. because the United States requires the investment to be at risk. Um, Got it. And United States is the only country, maybe one of the few countries, that offer this investment program and require the investment to be at risk, um, which is interesting. Is there a reasoning behind that, or is that just kind of how it evolved? I think it was just how it was. Um when it was set up in the 1990, I don't think people recognized um, the risk piece of it because this program, it's called EB-5 Investment Visa Program, and it was really the, um, one of the first programs ever offered in the entire world. Other, other programs from other countries mimic this uh, program, so they probably made it a little better yeah. than what we had before. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think uh, the at-risk piece is uh, really cool. I mean, I think that they're taking that money from people that, um, you know, really want to be here and really want to make you know, a difference and get outside of their country um, and create jobs. And most of the time, that's always going to be risky. That's always going to be starting something new, um, whether it's a real estate project like a hotel or some kind of startup or what, what kind of investments and developments is this money going into? What is it mostly real estate? Yeah, most real estate. Um, that's because it is at risk. There is a risk associated to it, and real estate tend to be a little more secure than other, you know, uh, soft investments. For example, investing in software or technology yeah. in different companies. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's the least risky of the risky category. Definitely. <laughs> Is there any plan to to get a little bit more into technology or software or anything beyond real estate, or is that kind of the development track? company just to stick in real estate for my company we tend to stick with real estate Mm -hmm. Um, but you know anybody can uh, use this platform to raise money 
Um, the reason why we we are the ones who are doing it is because it takes a lot of human capital mm-hmm. to start this company, and also a lot of capital to start it as well. Um, but really, if somebody's raising a small amount of money, for example, just looking for five hundred thousand uh, dollars for let's say a technology or a software. You can just raise for one investor as long as you create ten solid jobs. Yeah, for this investor, they will get their permanent residency. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I I've never heard of that law before. Now, yeah, that's that's something interesting. I didn't hear about it either until now. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely fascinating. Well, not till now. Until I, until Wit told me about it uh, a while ago. It was yeah, several months ago, but. You know, he he told myself and Michael and and Danny and a few other of our friends, and we were all just amazed. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really interesting. It's definitely an opportunity for anybody that understands how it works. Yeah, mm-hmm. completely or not completely, but kind of off topic of this. I know that there's been a large um, there's been a large trend, especially in Silicon Valley, but in the tech industry in general, of foreign investors um, creating funds and investing in all of these tech companies. Saudi Arabia is a big one right now that's doing it. They have like a three billion dollar fund. Um, are those attached to this program at all? Where any of those investors can can come over and become a resident, or is that is this kind of more just for very specific individual people? Yeah, I think for those ultra-rich people that I think you're talking about, or you know, just high net, really high net worth individuals, they are just looking to diversify their uh, their investment. So they, for those people who invest, you know, tens of millions of dollars into billions, billions of dollars, they don't necessarily want access, you know, want the citizenship or want the green card. You know, yeah, big, biggest reason is tax. And they already have the access to the United States if they want to. And that's the, the biggest piece. That's true. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I think SoftBank is – Saudi Arabia is definitely – I mean, they, they were talking about you know taking over Tesla, and they invest a ton of money in Silicon Valley. But SoftBank is probably what is – might be – I don't know the facts behind it, but it's definitely one of the biggest funds ever created. Yeah. Uh, and I was reading an article a few weeks ago that people in Silicon Valley are really getting scared because – it's hard to compete with that kind of money and that kind of backing, mm-hmm. um, buying and you know investing in these late stage startups. Yeah, it's really hard to compete with that. When you have someone who can afford to just throw around millions of dollars to a company and they can negotiate against all these other investors who maybe need more equity and need more out of something, I mean that could that could change the whole landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of Tesla, let's uh, do a little transition here. Uh, you have a Tesla. Yes, sir. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, yeah, that was good, huh? (laughs) Uh, Wet, you bought a Tesla. Why don't you tell people here in Kentucky uh, what it's like to drive a Tesla in Kentucky? Oh, man. I can go on and on and on about Tesla. So I I got a Tesla Model 3, Mm -hmm. and I ordered it probably in the mid-August, and I waited for a long time. But it's really worth it because that's not only the fastest car I've driven, and that's the smartest car I've driven. Mm-hmm. And you know, now everything is about being smart, right? It connects to you know, I don't even carry a um, a key or even a remote, so I, everything is through my phone. And then the greatest thing is the autopilot feature. It's just amazing. 
where because I commute from Lexington to Louisville. Um, so you sleep all night often. Um, I have to, you know, from time to time, <laughs> <laughs> that there's a reminder that a reminder that shows me that I have to put my hands on the wheel so they know I'm not falling asleep. But the best part is I can pretty much, you know, maybe just type, reply, type an email, reply to email, or, uh, you know, zoom out a little bit if I need to, especially in the morning. That's about an hour and 15-minute drive one way. Um, and then it adds up because the view is about the same and the traffic is always there. And that's really helpful to kind of – buys you more time to get some work done. Exactly, exactly. And so you trust it. You trust it that much that you're sitting there. It's driving you at 70 miles an hour, and you're on your phone and replying to emails. That doesn't – you haven't had a problem with that? No. No. Yeah. I, I trust it. I mean, it's Tesla. I mean, it's Elon Musk. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you have to trust him. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's, uh, there's definitely some really interesting statistics out there, but there's no arguing that autonomous cars are uh, significantly safer than human drivers. It's not even a, it's not even a debate. Mm-hmm. Um it's just a matter of when everybody's going to have an autonomous car. It's going to be tens of years, probably you know, 10, 20 years at least when, when uh, 50% or more have an uh, autonomous car. But You never know, especially when you think about it. 15 years ago, we didn't even know what iPhone is, right? Uh, yeah. Or iPhone was back then. And now when I was actually at the Tesla shop, people, the salesperson said, you know, we already have the capability of the full um, self-driving car. Yeah. The only reason they haven't, um, you know, introduced that to the public is because they have to work uh, around the law yeah. to make sure that everything is covered before yeah, yeah. they can uh, roll it out. Yeah, that's um, the thing that I'm worried about. Is you know the reason I say 20 years is because one regulation, mm-hmm. and that's going to take a long time for the government to really get their heads around what's going to happen and really regulate that. But the second thing is, I mean, if you're buying a car now, like right now. And it's not self-driving. You're probably going to hold on to that car. I mean, people hold on to cars for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll take a while for those cars to, you know, rotate out of the you know, use of citizens. Um, so I, I do think it'll be a while, but I don't think it needs to be a while. I think if it needs to be sped up and there's investment around speeding that whole process up and people moving away from uh, what's going to happen is people will move away from ownership. Yeah, won't be getting subscriptions to cars. I've been in two Teslas, and I absolutely love them. And if I were to buy a car in a few years, I would definitely buy a Tesla. But I'm hoping that the this wave comes sooner than what I think it will. So when I meet, when I need a car, or I want to have a car, I can just buy a Lyft subscription or whatever, and the car will just come pick me up and just take me wherever. Um, I think I think Teslas are in an interesting spot right now where they're kind of in between the ownership model and the SaaS model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once they turn that on, you know, I follow a lot of these investors pretty closely and um, a lot of these hedge funds and people that set up these ETFs. And there's this, there's one ETF where uh, the founder of it, um, one of the main partners had said that Tesla could easily, become a trillion dollar company because of the network that they're setting up with their autonomous cars, the data that they're collecting. So the artificial intelligence, the mesh network of cars, they're so far ahead of everybody else because of the miles they have. And then the biggest piece will be they're so far ahead in manufacturing the batteries yeah, and doing that all autonomously. And so when you add all that together, you really have this gigantic service company. You know, right now they're selling cars, but at the end of the day, 
what they're ultimately going to become is a service and is a service. It's going to be transportation and energy and connectivity. I think they're going to roll up. Uh, I think somehow SpaceX eventually is going to play a piece in the Tesla service, whether it's launching satellites or beaming internet down to all the cars. Mm-hmm. What Elon's building is this gigantic service. And the boring company. I mean, you'll be able to yeah. just yeah. take yeah. your car into the tunnel and just go from D.C. to New York in 30 minutes, and then the car will come out and take you to the building. And maybe he'll let you know Tesla owners have some kind of exclusive access or early access or favor, or maybe their cars are favored to getting into the tunnels. But yeah. who knows? Uh, it's definitely interesting what Tesla's um, you know building, but a big piece of it is batteries and charging. So what's it like to charge your car in Lexington? Is it mostly just done at your house? Have you run into needing to charge it outside of your house? What's that been like? It's actually it's actually pretty convenient. So I ha- I installed a charger at my uh, my house, so I charge it you know, every other day, pretty much. But you just plug it in and go to bed, and second day you unplug it and drive. So, and then if if or ever you run into a situation where you know you need a little more battery to go for a longer trip, the GPS actually um, take you to the, I guess the most convenient supercharger near you. And I experienced that last week, and. That's the fastest charging station I've ever experienced. <laughs> and you know, typically it takes, if I charge at home, it's called a level two charger. It takes about eight hours to charge my car up to 90% from 10%. When I used a supercharger, it only took me about less than 35 minutes to go from 10% to 90%. And that just saved me a significant amount of time. And they can typically charge my car 50% within the 15 to 20 minute range. So basically when I went out to grab a coffee and then my car will be ready to go. And it's really convenient. Does that cost me money? Uh, for Model 3, yes. For Model 3, it cost me money, but I had the charging credit because what's the, I'm the new uh, yeah. owner. What's the, what's the cost? It costs about 22 cents per minute. So adding that up, that's what? Like just a few dollars? Yeah. Less than $10? So for me to charge, yeah, it's about ten dollars. For much, a full much charge, charge ninety percent. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's wild. So you said, does it not go down to zero? You, you said ten percent, and then you said ninety percent. You haven't said a hundred percent, and you haven't said zero percent. What's what's so going on there? They typically uh, reserve about five percent just in case anything happens. Um, they and they also suggest me not to charge it hundred percent unless I know I'm going on a long road trip, just because they want to keep the battery alive to last a little longer. So, that's so if you charge I'm up to a hundred percent too often, it can damage the battery. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. I, I I guess I never tried it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, but I definitely awesome. recommend. Yeah. If, if anybody's thinking about getting an electric car, you got to go with Tesla. I mean, no, I know there are other brands that are going to come um, have different electric cars, but what can I say? Tesla is the first one to ever launch an electric car, and then you know I'll say they're one of the best in the country, in the nation, in yeah. that world. It's just a fascinating company who has an amazing product, mm-hmm. uh, and with somebody like Elon Musk, you know, running the company, it's just I don't know. It's just it's like watching a movie. Right. Every they're always in the in the press. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wants to cover them, and they're always releasing cool shit. 
Mm-hmm. It's like every year, every quarter, there seems like they're launching just some kind of new product or buying Solar City or putting you know solar panels on roofs or mm-hmm. semi trucks or you know supercars. It's amazing, and I I wouldn't be surprised if they have a subscription, uh, what can I say, subscription model because. Now, if you're a member of Tesla, you actually get to invite it to their exclusive events, um, to the new product launch. What? And uh, you get all different kinds of exclusive benefits being a Tesla member. And that gives me a sense of pride to be a part of the group. Um, that's also another reason, you know, you should I, get a Tesla. I'm a Tesla just for that. I'll <laughs> <laughs> talk at an event. <laughs> yeah. the, the boring company is about to, to start digging a tunnel here in Chicago from downtown out to O'Hare uh, and they say you'll be able to get from O'Hare right to the middle of downtown in like five minutes when it's done um, so I'm so excited for that yeah when I was up in Chicago last week getting from downtown Chicago to O'Hare was a mess it's ridiculous oh. it, it takes just <laughs> as long to fly from Kentucky to Chicago as it takes to get from Chicago to my, or from the airport to my apartment. Yeah. I didn't think of it like that. That's really true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sucked. Um, Okay. Well, let's, uh, we always try to end the episode and always tie the episode back to Kentucky and wherever you're from. So uh, we're from Lexington. We're sitting in Lexington right now. So uh, what do you see here in Lexington that you really, um, are taking notice to and really enjoying and, and you know have you know a really long perspective on. Mm-hmm. That's a good, that's a really good question because when I first came to Lexington in 2013, there weren't that many people. How could I tell? It was because the traffic is getting worse and worse every year. Yep. Um, it's you know it's ridiculous. Now it's getting to a point where. You have to, the, the rush hour. You have to sit in the rush hour for like forty-five minutes to get home from downtown to Man of War. You know, typically takes about what ten minutes. Yeah. To to get around in Lexington, uh, not in the rush hours. But I think that another good thing is they're trying to grow the city because this city was a college surrounded town. Everything is about UK, and everything is for UK. But uh, I think in the next couple of years, they're trying to expand more to uh, different parts of Lexington and bring more people so that they can stay here. I think another great thing is um, the governor, the Kentucky current governor right now is trying to push more um, foreign direct investments to to Lexington uh, and Louisville. That way that uh, there are more foreign companies will come here and bring more people actually to Kentucky um, and especially to Lexington with the few projects that have been working on in the past couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that Nate and I and I have noticed, you know, during this podcast and talking to some of the individuals that are actually, you know, a big part of changing uh, Lexington and and growing Lexington, people like um, Scott Shapiro and uh, Ian McClure, who are really working to set up uh, innovation and small businesses and startups and technology here uh, in Lexington. And, um, you know, a lot of the other hosts that we've had on here um, are doing amazing things and we get the sense of you know this place is about to really blow up mm-hmm. uh, it's really about to expand and um, improve you know the quality of life and the technology scene here so we're really excited to you know be a part of that 
Um, but in your eyes, you know, other than traffic, uh, <laughs> what do you think needs to change the most uh, in Lexington? Um, there's definitely more international uh, developments here um, because what I do, I, um, about a few years ago, uh, Lexmark was bought by a Chinese company, you know, uh, here. And also now another Chinese company uh, just bought GE, which is a company really? called Hire. So they're the, one of the biggest um, uh, companies in China that bought G appliances, not G oh, the not general the electric. Yeah, yeah, the G appliances. And then, um, so I think it, it, in my eyes, I think there are definitely more uh, foreign money that's coming into Lexington. And that's also what I want to do is to direct more money to Lexington because we have a lot of talented people. A lot of great ideas and a lot of good startups, and but Lexington or just Kentucky in general, there's not enough capital to invest in those ideas. Yep. And um, you know, there's we have a great potential. Um, it's just how we can get those resources from different parts of the world. To here. Yeah. So. Yeah. You got Amazon investing mm -hmm. in Northern Kentucky. That's a huge investment. Mm -hmm. um, Toyota has their biggest factory mm -hmm. in Georgetown. You know, just uh, really close here to Lexington, so um, yeah, I definitely hear you. There's a lot of cool companies moving into the area, but there needs to be more. Definitely. Um, so when you uh, look at your time here in Lexington and uh, you know the present and the future, what do you really want to be uh, remembered for and, and do here in Lexington? Now, of course, I want. I really want to bring more capitals to Kentucky in general, because that's how you really get the projects going. Um, get the ideas started. Um, when people say we need, we have a lot of human capital here, especially the people like Evan and A, yourself, they have some great ideas, but you sometimes are forced to move to another city because of limited resources, right? Yep. So um, that's the reason why I'm here. And I'm hoping that through my current work or my future work, um, I get to go to China, India, Vietnam, Brazil and uh, Europe to different countries and bring those people to here so they know that we're just we're not only known for Kentucky fried chicken or bourbon <laughs> or horses when they come here they will love here so uh, and that's how I see myself playing a part here in the growth of Lexington and Kentucky as a whole.